this morning as you join me in Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5 this morning. This is a self-contained unit in the Word of God. It's really one story that we find here. As we approach this text this morning, I am cognizant of two things. One is that many do not know what it means to act and trust in the name of Jesus. If I were to talk about trusting in God or trusting in Christ, you would understand what that means. But when it comes to trusting in a name that is somehow foreign, often to many, it was foreign to me for many years until I planted myself in a chair one day and concentrated my attention for some time on the biblical text and the meaning of trusting in the name of Jesus. But then I'm also cognizant of the fact that we have many needs as we seek to serve the Lord and walk in this world in love and integrity. And I will say to you that those needs are met in the name of Jesus. And that is the marvelous, outstanding, unparalleled provision God has given to his people is the name of Jesus. Now, the first century Christian folk did not really think through the name of Jesus in quite the detail we will today, but they did assume what we're talking about this morning. Because using someone else's name was a common thing to them, whereas it's not quite common for us. The question I want to ask for just a moment is, what is the significance of a name in the biblical text? Well, one significance happens to be merit, merit, or access. In other words, you're able to access something because you're worthy of something. Uh, in my first pastorate, one of my deacons was a state senator in South Carolina. In fact, he just retired as the uh, lieutenant governor of the state, a fine, dedicated Christian man that uh, I admired deeply and was a great service and help to me and to our church and and obviously to his district. But he invited me to come speak in the Senate chapel one morning. And he invited me to come and said, I want you to come in on Sunday night. It's early Monday morning, so spend the night there. I'll have everything arranged at uh, this hotel in Columbia. And when you get to the desk there, just mention my name and you'll have access to the room. And that's all I had to do. I didn't have to pull out any dollar bills. I didn't have to pull out a credit card. It's just that Yancey McGill had left his name at the desk for me to use, and I was granted access to a hotel room far beyond what I could ever afford on my own. And in the same way, the Father has given us access to all the glories of His majesty in His home and of a walk with Him as children by the name of Jesus. Jesus has said, just come to the counter and mention my name, and I've got it all prepared for you. They'll know what you're talking about when you mention my name. So merit. But there is another um, nuance to the name of Jesus, and that happens to be authority. Authority. A number of years ago, when we hired another evangelism professor after my coming, uh, the president, uh, Dr. Patterson, invited him and me into the, uh, his office, and he said, I want the two of you now that I've got a full team to make everything evangelistic on the campus. And he said, I don't suspect you'll get any resistance from this crowd, but in case you do, mention my name and say the president wants it. Well, we didn't have to pull out the presidential name card, but he did give that to us. 
and he and I operated on the campus as special ambassadors and uh, emissaries on behalf of the president to fulfill his evangelistic visit. And I, I must tell you, things broke loose after that, but we really didn't do much. All we did was go back to my office after that meeting and pray, and God answered, and it just exploded, really, without us doing much of anything. And, uh, but it was a comforting thing to know that I could go to graduates of Oxford and Yale and Aberdeen and some other elite institutions that are not quite known for their evangelistic spirit and sympathy with Baptist evangelism efforts, and that the faculty would get on board and move forward for the evangelistic cause. The president lent us his name and gave us authority. Another nuance is example. A name represented someone's character, and it does today as well. I heard of this man, uh, an African convert. He came to Christ and gave himself a new name, and the new name was After. And people quizzed him and said, why are you calling yourself After now? He said, because anything lovely and worthy and right has come after I received Christ as Savior. So his name was a witnessing tool. And it really represented his heart and represented his character. Now, we do that today. We do that especially with nicknames. Slim. Of course, sometimes that means the exact opposite in the South, doesn't it? And we, do, we have other nicknames for people like that. Well, that is another nuance to the use of the name. In our family... Uh, all we have to do is mention the name of my uncle, Howard Grant. And that communicates quickly and immediately kind, sweet, servant-oriented Christian character. But we don't have to go through a lengthy explanation. We just mention Uncle Howard's name. And, and then finally, another nuance to the meaning of the name is cause. It represents a cause in the earth. The name of Jesus does. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, my mother had a cause. Anytime she would use my full name in calling me, Lester David Mills, there was a cause behind that tone of voice. And so uh, it represents a cause. Now here in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, Peter and John and the other apostles were under some duress, and when they were, they emphasized the name of Jesus. And here in this text, in one way or another, the name of Jesus appears 19 times, either the name itself or another name, like the servant of the Lord or the Holy One, or some synonym to go along with it. And so the whole concept of the name ties together these chapters in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. And just to outline the chapter this morning, we find first healing in Jesus' name. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And this really ignites the rest of the passage. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple about the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they'd laid daily, at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Well, that made perfectly good sense. The biggest crowd, the most generous people. You plant yourself in the midst of them and they give. And then he, in verse 3, saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked, and he asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said what about any other Baptist preacher would say, look at us. And he gave to them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You, this man thought that he needed one thing when Peter could provide another. The man asked for one thing not knowing he could have what he really needed. 
And that was the ability to stand and walk again in the name of Christ. And so often the world is asking us for one thing when they really need another, not knowing they can have it in the name of Jesus Christ. And we have to be faithful to bypass some of those initial requests and say, you can have this in the name of Jesus Christ, what you really need. So Peter, in verse 7, took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, something that did not even happen in the gestation period in his mother's womb. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now this ignites a series of events. This first one is healing in Jesus' name, but then there's honor to Jesus' name in verse 11 through 26. The people rushed, and they are apparently amazed at the power Peter and John had. And Peter clarifies them and disabuses them of any notion that they themselves had any inherent worthy power to heal a man. And so Peter addresses them and chides them a little in verse 12. He said, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? He said, The God of Abraham has come through and fulfilled his promises from Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. You killed him in his son Jesus Christ, But God raised him from the dead and made him the prince of life in verse 15. Then in verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, this faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he pointed to Jesus and said the hope is in Jesus' name. And with that opportunity, Peter segued into the saving gospel of Christ. You know, Peter didn't have many subjects in his sermons. Jesus and get saved. That's about all Peter preached. And this is what happens here in the text. Then it moves on to harassment for Jesus' name in chapter 4. Peter and the rest continue to preach. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And then they laid hands on them and brought them before the tribunal, and began to interrogate them. Well, Peter hears from them, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit in verse number 8. And then he says in verse number 10, again, he points to Jesus as the source of healing, but then he gets on to the saving gospel in verse 10. Let it be known to you all, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This Christ is the stone which was rejected by you builders. You rejected God's building material for Israel in the world. It has become the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone is the stone around which you measure the rest of the building and determine its proportions. You build it all around a cornerstone, an ancient building, and that's who Jesus is. All the measurements and proportions and the dimensions of a building are built around Him. And God's building the kingdom around Jesus Christ, and He doesn't have any apologies for that. Verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Peter's preaching the gospel again. Well, it enrages them. And they dismiss the apostles and Peter, and they consult together, and they say, well, let's threaten them and command them never to talk more in this name. Peter leaves from them and moves on to the apostles and the others. And in verse 23 and 24, they gather together for a prayer meeting. They exalt the name of Jesus, and the result is verse number 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Instead of rescinding and retreating, the Holy Spirit presses them forward, even after they're threatened and commanded by governing authorities to be quiet and to hush. They can't do it. They can't help themselves. They give themselves to prayer, and in Jesus' name, in verse 32 to 37, they're reminded of the needs that this lingering crowd there of new Christians at the Church of Jerusalem has, and they supply their needs. Well, that ignites some excitement in the church in chapter 5. There's a great giving campaign, and people are applauding and excited. Barnabas gives a great gift at the end of chapter 4, and that catches the attention of Ananias and Sapphira. They want to elevate their reputation to the level of Barnabas. And so they decide they're going to give. And they do in chapter 5, but they keep back some of the money for themselves, and that's okay, but what they claim publicly is a lie. They claim that what they've done is that they've given the entire purchase price of some land they've sold to take care of others' needs. Peter senses and discerns this in chapter 5. He confronts Ananias first, and Ananias drops down expired and dead because he's lied in the presence of God. His wife Sapphira comes by later three hours not knowing what's happened to her husband. Peter quizzes her and asks, did you give this price or receive this price for the land? And she said, yes, she lied too, and she collapses dead. God is very serious about holiness and purity. He's very serious about integrity. Now, I'm grateful and thankful there aren't many more of these episodes in the New Testament. But immediately, God announces in a very dramatic act in this text, He wants His churches pure and true. And I want to say to you, I hope here at Beach Haven we will feel free to gather together and to be transparent. And when we struggle and have a problem, we'll feel free to admit and confess it and get the help that we need. It's not always appropriate to do that in a public gathering. Sometimes it may be. Whatever you need. But I want to say to you, Beach Haven Baptist Church is not a museum of perfect works of Christian art. It's not. One of the lovely things to do is to tell folks that come to the Lord here at Beach Haven and follow Jesus in baptism that whatever struggle you're dealing with right now, you've got a congregation full of people that have dealt with the same. I mean, we've got people that have overcome problems with alcohol and drug use and marital problems. Uh, they've, they've overcome difficulties and challenges, and God has seen them through uh, trouble with children, uh, trouble uh, in all sorts of areas. And, and that's such an encouraging thing. And there's so many of you here that have used your pain and your suffering and, and your sins for the glory of God. 
in humility and in repentance. What a great thing to tell new converts and new members, that kind of thing, that you are in this place with people who have overcome by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. So I, I want to make it real clear to you. We are not a museum of perfect works of Christian art, but we are a hospital for sinners. That's what we are. Now follow doctor's orders. Do what Jesus said. He's the great physician. He's got a staff here. Follow doctor's order. But if you need a hospital for your soul in your life, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. So the Lord here insists on holiness for Jesus' name. Well, they keep preaching at the end of, uh, well, in verses 14 through 16. And that earns the attention of the governing Jewish authorities. And so they call them back before them again in chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. And they threaten them, they beat them, and in fact, they want to kill them. But up rises a Jewish rabbi who teaches in the seminary. He is present there, and historically, he is a very significant man. His name is Gamaliel. Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is the one who trained Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. That is the kind of stature this man had. And he trained Paul in the ways of the Pharisees. And he was a rather mild and temperate man, but uh, ancient sources say he was incredibly wise, respected, talented, and very, very capable. And there are some who suspect that he eventually came to Christ. Now, the counsel he gives is usually applauded, beginning in verse number 33, where we find his counsel. And that is, he essentially says, fellows, don't get too excited about this new movement. Now, that was his first mistake. You're supposed to get excited about this movement. And then he makes some terrible comparisons of Jesus with Thaddeus and Judas and said, we've had these self-styled, self-proclaimed messiahs come along before. And their movements became nothing. Let these men alone and let this thing run its course. If it's not from God, it will turn out to be nothing. If it is, you need to be careful. You might be fighting God. Now, many applaud Gamaliel for the counsel that he gave that day. I'm with Vance Havner on this, however, I must say. And this is a minority position on Gamaliel's counsel, but I've got to say, Gamaliel's counsel was really awful at several levels. He made a false or ill-advised counsel. He said, don't get too excited about this, when you should do the exact opposite and get thrilled and zealous for the cause of the Lord. Then he made a false and ill-advised comparison, comparing Jesus with Thaddeus and Judas. They don't compare because they were still in the grave. Jesus was risen from the dead. And then he came to a false conclusion. Oh, a terribly false conclusion. He said, if it's not from God, it will expire. If it is, it'll continue to live. There was enough in the Old Testament and in the gray matter between Gamaliel's ears to conclude this was from God. He was leaving open the possibility that the Christian movement was not from God. So I, I don't applaud Gamaliel for his advice. Vance Havner, in fact, said that earlier in this text, you've got trouble on the outside from the Sanhedrin council. And then you've got trouble on the inside 
for the church from Ananias and Sapphira. So outside against the church, inside against the church, with Gamaliel, you've got trouble on the fence. Someone that wants to take a neutral position, and Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There aren't three options. There are only two. You're either for Christ or against Christ. Well, this morning I won't make a decision. That's a decision. When you decide not to make a decision in favor of Jesus Christ, you've just made a decision. And that is not to follow him despite all of his commands. And so Gamaliel's counsel and advice I don't think should be well received. Nevertheless, it does buy the disciples, the apostles here, some time. And it said in verse 41, after they had been beaten in verse 40, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, the precincts and the ruling area of this council, daily in the temple, I mean, they're audacious. They're going back to where they're always getting into trouble. Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. God has given to those who follow Christ the use of the name of Jesus as a gift. Now, why is it a gift? Well, let me mention a few reasons real quickly. As merit, in the first place, Jesus' name represents our hope. A pope in the Middle Ages was with Dominique, the founder of the Dominicans, and he was showing him the great wares and the riches of the Roman Catholic Church the Vatican. And he jokingly remarked to Dominique, he said, Dominique, no longer can we say silver and gold have I none. And Dominique said, and neither can we say in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. All the ritual and wealth and abundance of the world is not enough to access the power of God in Christian service. It's not enough. It takes the matchless name of Christ. And Peter makes this very clear in chapter 3, verses 12 and verse 16. Why do you look at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? He said in verse 16, It is his name through faith in his name that has made this man strong. Our hope for the blessing of God and our walk and our service with Jesus Christ has never rested upon our behavior or our performance. It does not. It cannot, or we are hopeless. It rests instead upon the performance and the behavior of Jesus Christ. And at the salvation experience, God transfers all the merits and favors earned by the obedience and death and resurrection of Christ. He transfers those to the believer's account and gives him something of a bank account an account in heaven on which to draw when there is a need for power and favor and strength and guidance and wisdom. And so that's why most mornings I find myself praying, Father, 
I have got to have the same love and the same power and the same guidance that you would give Jesus if he were in my shoes. And my only hope for accessing all those blessings is that you have promised me the name of Jesus. And dear church and struggling Christian, please heed me and listen to me when I say, the Father has given you the name of Christ to access the warehouse and the storehouse of divine grace and mercy. Go get your hands full of blessings from heaven. You can have it because Christ has earned it for you. You may say, I'm not good enough for God to use me. My answer is you never have been, and you never will be, and you do not have to be. At salvation, all the merits and favors of Jesus Christ were given to you, and so you can obey like Jesus. You can teach like Jesus. You can pray like Jesus. You can love like Jesus. You can restore and reconcile like Jesus. You can solve problems like Jesus. In fact, the scripture is audacious and unblushing. When it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. There is no reason, no excuse for any Christian home or family or marriage or church to live in utter and perpetual failure. The name of Jesus is available. As merit, Jesus' name then represents our hope. But there's a second thing. As authority, Jesus' name represents our right. Sometimes in this world, whether it's true or not, we feel outnumbered. Oh, we want to take the gospel public, but we're intimidated so often. We're outnumbered. We're scared. Sometimes we decline into cowardice. And often we may ask ourselves, what right do I have to tell the world it's wrong and only Christ is true? What right do I have to do that? Well, all of that is wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That, by the way, is one of the most popular memory verses and scripture memory courses and has been for decades and should be. The Father has authorized Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as Lord of the church and as Lord and dispenser of salvation. He alone is Lord and He is worthy to be heard of in the world. All the way through, He is worthy. He has a right to rule to organize an administration, to compose a strategy, and then to assign his servants to some place in the world to declare his good news. So may I say to you, the Christian person zealous to declare the good news of Jesus Christ in this world is not the interloper. He or she is not the intruder. He or she is not the trespasser. Ladies and gentlemen, it is sin and hell and darkness and unbelief that is trespassing. The world belongs to Jesus Christ. This is His property. He was elected by God in the resurrection to be Lord, and He will take office when He returns in His second coming. We're in the in-between time now, but it still belongs to Him. We have not invented a message of our own, of our own human creation, and speak it on behalf of ourselves, but we have received a message from the throne certified by the death and resurrection of Christ, and we declare it on behalf of God. We are not 
We are not infringing on someone else's domain or someone else's kingdom. The truth is the devil and his crowd have no authority and no right to tell us we're trespassing. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's purchased that authority in his resurrection, and he was not unblushing when he said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And so the apostles respond. In verse 19 and 20, Peter and John answered when they told him to be quiet. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. The name of Christ is our authority. So witnessing spontaneously at a restaurant to the server is entirely appropriate. Going door to door to declare the gospel, as many of our members will next Saturday, is entirely appropriate. Distributing New Testaments door-to-door, as our teenagers will today, is entirely appropriate. Whatever it takes to get the good news to every human on earth, in every setting, every situation, we are doing so on God's real estate. It is entirely appropriate. We're authorized by Christ. But there's a third thing. As example, Jesus' name represents our model. A name does imply character. You use nicknames for others. And that's true here. And many names that are not nicknames, but given names and birth names do so as well. What do you think about when you think about the name George Washington? Well, there are many things you think about. Integrity, bold leadership, prayer, a variety of other things, the founder and father of our nation the first president, there's an awful lot of character wrapped up in the name George Washington. So all over the United States, for more than 200 years, you have found many families giving their, giving their sons at birth the name George, precisely because of George Washington. You have many cities, a district, and a state in the United States named Washington in hopes that they'll pick up something of his character. Well, that's very positive. What do you think, though, when you think of the name Hitler? What a grievous name. It's almost profanity, isn't it? Hitler. Need I say more? I don't have to describe the diabolical, demonic nature of that man's memory to communicate to you the character of that name. George Washington, Hitler, there are other names that are important to Americans. Uh, (laughs) Chick-fil-A. That's another name. Well, that means something, doesn't it? In many ways. Well, that's what we find the apostles and the rest of the church engaging in in this text in chapter 4 and chapter 5. They implement the model and the example of Jesus. In uh, chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, his example of prayer. They did not whine and complain about being beaten. I would have sympathized with them had they done so. But instead, they went quickly to their companions in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4, and they held a prayer meeting. And God moved, and they praised His name. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus was facing a difficult time, that's precisely what He did in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke recorded that in Luke 22. Then they followed His example of giving. I mean, after being beaten, you wouldn't imagine that your prospects, your financial prospects, were very sound and solid. You'd be tempted to hoard and keep back in case you needed it, but instead... They gave to one another. 
Well, Jesus did the same in Luke 17. He had Peter retrieve tax money out of the mouth of a fish, of all things. And that's, that's how Jesus gave. And then his example of integrity. I told you the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus maintained his integrity when tempted like they were in Luke chapter 4. There the devil tempted him and Jesus met those temptations with the word of God. Jesus' example can be summarized in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. He's encouraging his disciples to serve one another and to get beneath each other that they may really lead one another. And he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And, this is the way, by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's what he did. By going and dying on the cross, Jesus was serving the earth, serving all those who had sinned and would believe. By paying the penalty and paying the court price to release them out of the bonds and shackles of sin and guilt before the court of God is what he did. That is how Jesus served. And that became, his death on the cross became the platform of his instruction to his disciples. God's way is the way of Jesus Christ. And God the Father is not, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but God the Father is not very fond of political correctness. He doesn't say, well, on one hand, Jesus is exalted, but you know, Muhammad has a few things to offer too. He's never said such things. And he's never said that some of the Buddhas have something to offer or some of the gods of Hinduism. Oh, they're lovely people in every one of those groups, but the root and the origin of each of those do not compare with Jesus Christ. And the Father is not going to imply blasphemy by getting them anywhere near the name of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' name is the model, the one that God the Father exalts. And so those who want to be used of God must have a heart, a soul, a fire, a passion to follow Jesus' example. Hudson Taylor, the 19th century missionary that really launched a, or reinvigorated the missionary movement, and I think probably influenced Lottie Moon as well, said, God's will done in God's way will always enjoy God's supply. In other words, God's work must be done in God's way if, if we want to enjoy the power of God. Running off on our own and doing our will will never be met by the power of God. But fully surrendering and submitting to the will of God is what calls for and obtains and achieves the power of God. So as an example, Jesus' name represents our model. But there's a final hope here as well. As cause, Jesus' name represents, represents our motive. Jesus' name is our motive. What, what is the motive that so many people uh, observe when seeking to be religious or to be part of a church? Well, there are some that are seeking to satisfy themselves. I know someone that admitted that she went off and served a homeless feeding shelter for herself. She did it for her own good. Well, I will tell you, it will do you a lot of good, but please, oh please, don't ever make something like that an objective. How about doing it for the homeless? And that's one of the difficulties and problems with people who come seeking help in churches. They're seeking for themselves when it would be better just to forget yourself and go find someone else to serve. Happiness and satisfaction is not a pursuit. Please don't pursue it. I've never told my children 
for example, all I want for you is to be happy. Oh, that places an enormous burden upon their shoulders. What do they do when they're not happy? Does that mean something's wrong? No, it may mean something's right. Real life and actually life full of progress and direction sometimes includes some unhappiness. It does. Good marriages have times of unhappiness. Parenting, well, you know, uh, uh, Christian service. It, it can involve times of happiness, and it's not because you necessarily are doing something wrong. It may be that you're doing something right. And so the truth is, is that elevating that as a motive and as an objective in life is probably not the healthiest or help, most helpful thing in the world. It is probably better to say, I want them to be like Jesus. And we'll let God take care of the satisfaction. We'll let God take care of the other items and things in life. We just serve the Lord and do what He wants us to do, no matter how we feel about it. Because we're not to be driven by our feelings, we're to be driven by obedience to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our motive. In other words, we are living for His cause. And the, the apostles here in chapter 5, verse number 41, thought... It a wonderful thing, a cause for rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name or for his cause. And that's precisely what's taking place in the text. They're living for Jesus, magnifying his name and exalting him. When that gets on our heart, we draw the attention of heaven. We draw the attention of heaven when our motives are aligned with those of heaven. Make no mistake about it. The Father is intensely centered on Jesus Christ. His heart, His goal, His plan is to wrap up and unify everything in Jesus, not necessarily so the Father will be satisfied. He will. But not necessarily so the Father will be satisfied, but that His Son might be satisfied. And when we place our hearts in the same place, in the same direction, with the same intent and the same motives, then heaven gives us it's attention. And that's what Jesus Christ intends to do. And so our desire is to say, God, whatever it takes to make Jesus' name famous and to satisfy him, I'm in. I'll do whatever it takes. I want his name to be as famous throughout the world as the name FDR is to Democrats, as the name Ronald Reagan is to Republicans, as the name Ted uh, Williams is to the Boston Red Sox, as the name Babe Ruth is to the New York Yankees, as, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the name Herschel is to the Bulldog Nation. We want Jesus' name to be that famous and even wider and more so, and the attitude has got to be whatever it takes to make it so I'm in, I will spend and gladly be spent for the sake of His name. Now, think with me for just a moment. The Father has offered us the name of Christ as our merit and as our hope, as our authority, our example, as our cause. He's taken that matchless name and made it available to the people of God. What is He up to? Just exactly is what, what is he trying to achieve? I know that ultimately he's trying to exalt Jesus Christ, but do you know what he's doing? Do you know how he's doing that? Ultimately, he's ex exalting Jesus Christ, but to achieve that, 
He's blessing his people. In other words, it is the Father's desire to give you the favors and the love that he has reserved for his own son. He wants to treat you with the love and favor that he treats his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, you and I are not Jesus and we'll never be elevated to that place. That's not the point. But the point is, that is how far the grace of God extends to those who trust only in the name of Christ. And that's what the Father wants to do for you. And so you brought your tears here this morning. You've brought your guilt. You brought your anxieties and your fears. And God declares through his word this morning that the name of Jesus is adequate for every one of them. There's nothing you have that surpasses or intimidates him. And there's nothing that ultimately can keep you down if you'll come in the name of Jesus to the God and Father who loves that matchless, precious name. And Father, we thank you. Oh, God, we thank you. There's nothing like the name of Christ. And our plea today is, is that you would help us avail ourselves of everything related to that name. There's some of our friends here today that need to do that for the guilt of their sins. It's bearing down on them. And they need to repent and come to Christ. And I pray that you would help them to do so today. I pray they would find sweet relief in calling on the crucified and risen name. Others have other burdens and they're struggling and they're hurting. And they're sinking. And they're worried that they aren't setting a very good example. Would you please meet that need? Others have terrible anxieties about the future. I pray that you would persuade and convince them that the future, if they follow your will, is as bright as the name of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And as we do, staff will stand here in the front of the aisles and they'll be ready to help meet your spiritual need. Would you come? Tell them your spiritual need, what you need to do. You may not even know, but you come anyway. We want to help and serve. Maybe you need to unload your guilt and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to become part of Beach Haven. Maybe there's some burden that you need to unload on the Lord. Oh, how he's willing to take it and to treat you with all the favor and goodness that he would treat his own son. Friends, you've got the name of Jesus. Now stand quickly right now and come use it, would you?